0: Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to two local 60s radicals about the Red Scare, the assassination of Fred Hampton, and being marked for death by COINTELPRO. We chatted to Harry Crew's biographer about Southern literature, and we had a special visit from one of the Guerrillas collaborators in studio. All this, plus the Trump Diaries and much more on Lumpin' Week in Review for June 16, 2017.
1: Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to Fred and Michael Klonsky about getting radical in the 1960s. The Klonskys, once key figures in the SDS, recounted the assassination of close friend and Black Panther Fred Hampton, and how their picture was on the wall of the local police station. Radio Free with John Daly, Ed Marzuski, and Jamie Trecker airs every Tuesday, drive time, from four to six p.m.
2: We have amongst our company this afternoon, two of the great hosts here on WLPN, uh, the Klonsky brothers of Hitting Left. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. Yeah.
3: And where did that kernel start for you guys? How did you get activated? You go first on that, Fred. For, you know, my Fred, Fred's uh, <laughs> younger than I am, but he was actually involved in the in the movement before I was. You know, when I was still. You know, uh, uh, racing cars around LA, and when you were a juvenile delinquent in fight, East yeah. LA, which is—I should say—stealing cars and playing hoops and uh, things like that. Yeah. Fred was was uh, active in you know, fighting, and he would beat me up, fighting against the because war I, because of that. He would, no, 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 yes, come on, you, it was a fair fight. Uh, you're, he's act, he was actually bigger than I was, but he was actually he was actually, uh, he was actually uh, even in high school. And younger, he was actually more politically aware, more politically conscious. He was uh, fighting for civil rights and uh, op- opposing the war in Vietnam and things like that be- when I was not really uh, that much interested in stuff like Cause that.
0: Because you were just trying to race cars and get laid.
4: Well, that's uh, not to say that I wasn't trying to.
3: Yeah. He raised. wasn't in, in racing cars. I, I, I was. <laughs> you were
4: getting laid. Uh, i I also was trying uh, to get are you allowed to say late on i think
0: so i think we successfully passed the red button test thank you jamie all right yeah
4: well tell us fred what happened you're in high school well well, part of it is our parents fault uh, Mm -hmm. because um uh, both of them uh, uh, were uh, were reds in the 40s and 50s my dad uh, Reds doesn't mean Reds. what it means today you yeah know, like it's, Reds not state. A, it's not a no. color of a state it's uh, it, it meant communist it's the, it's party communist member communist party member and in fact at 17 uh, he left home on his uh, brother's passport and took a uh, freighter uh, to France and uh, looking for the um, uh, for the uh, uh, the Republican forces in Spain and joined up with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade at 17 old one of the youngest volunteers And as many people might know, but might not know, that three thousand Americans went to fight in that in that war—the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, Spanish Civil War against uh, General Franco, who uh, was being basically set up by the Germans and Mussolini. So uh, they overthrew the democratic elected government, and young people from all over the world, much like the Civil Rights Movement, a couple generations later, they went to Spain, and my and our dad. uh, uh, d- uh, did that and instead uh, of Mississippi they, they went to Spain went to Spain yeah yeah. So, well there's better wine there yeah, <laughs> yeah. and um, so uh, in fact when I was a kid you know in the movie with um, uh, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls came out with um, uh, who played uh, R- Roberto Gary Cooper no. Gary Cooper and I saw that movie in the theaters and was convinced that Gary Cooper uh, was playing my dad oh wow my friend, uh, I had a friend whose father also fought in Spain. We had a fight over the fact that he thought his, his father was Gary Cooper. Anyway, so that was the atmosphere we grew up in. And then in the early 50s, uh, uh, dad was indicted under what they called the Smith Act uh, in, in those days, and uh, which was uh, basically a, a political offense that uh, – Meant that you, they were charged with uh, advocating the violent overthrow of the government. This was not really. Of they were charged
3: with conspiring, conspiring, to they didn't advocate, conspiring, to to advocate. Conspiring to to advocate. Yeah. yeah,
4: conspiracy laws. You understand? You don't do anything. Yeah. You just if, like we might, in fact, if Michael wasn't uh, the secretary of defense, yeah, we might, in fact, be charged with conspiracy at this very moment to overthrow
0: moment. the government. At least not John Daly's government or Lumpen Radio's government. <laughs> so. Uh, but seriously, that so for, for what for what statement saying we should have a union? No, or? no,
4: for being for being a communist, and so yeah. uh, those people who were openly uh, open leaders member. of the party in eleven different cities, including Chicago, uh, were indicted and uh, and were convicted, and many spent uh, time in federal penitentiary until the Supreme Court uh, ruled that uh, Mike and Fred's father couldn't go to jail uh, uh, for his thoughts, and yeah. so. And so, but during that time, for a long time, he wasn't for the for for those early years in our lives, uh, Dad wasn't around. Uh, so that so that kind of added to our perspective on the world. And then, uh, by the time I got to college, it and was then we followed in
3: his footsteps a couple of times.
4: We ended up sharing
3: a cell together.
4: <laughs> what, yes,
2: what years? Uh, of were, course, w- he did. Was what, this, this the Smith Act?
4: The Smith Act was. They were indicted in, died in 52, 53, 54. Really, it was. It, it corresponded to what's known as the McCarthy era, the in, red in, scare. In, 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 and uh, it didn't really uh, people were threatened with, uh, uh, um, um, for example, they would, people would be called before the House Un-American Activities Committee. And if they uh, refused to name names of their uh, fellow uh, members, uh, they would be put in jail. For, out in
3: Hollywood, where we were living out in L.A., uh, many uh, great uh, uh, screenwriters, uh, directors uh, uh, lost their jobs or they had to they had to write. And make films under a phony name uh, because they weren't allowed to work. Uh, that's what you know, I was. Gonna, that's yeah. what I was getting yeah, at.
5: You, yeah, yeah. A lot of people were blacklisted. right? Well,
3: yeah, right. and they weren't all Hollywood uh, uh, writers
4: and directors. There were truck drivers and, uh, and union organizers and all all over the country who also lost their jobs and were. I mean, the blacklist in Hollywood was the most famous and it had the most publicity precisely because it was Hollywood. But this happened to people, to, just to regular working people all over the country that and, weren't allowed to work in their fields any longer. And as
3: kids, when uh, when dad was, dad was away, you know, I put that in quotes, when, when he was away, uh, we, were, we were followed by uh, FBI agents, you know, like if I would go to the, it, we were living in Philly at the time in uh, 56 or 55, and when I would go to Fairmount Park to play baseball, There'd be a guy in a trench coat and one of, you know, we were were We were actually the safest us, kids you know, in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had an FBI escort yeah, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. everywhere yeah.
4: Like if stranger danger was around, that, that wasn't our problem because we had an FBI escort everywhere we went. And how did you deal with that? Just were you laugh it off and go,
3: oh, I maybe was, we could send them out for some I coffee? think it was pretty traumatic for me. Yeah? And, in fact, uh, a while back I, f- I was looking through uh, old photos, our family photos, and I found a, a vaccination certificate Uh with with my name on it, as I think I was like seven years old, and uh, but the name on it was Michael Kirby. So, but we had to ch- we had to change our last name in order to uh, you know to avoid uh, the man, you know.
0: Well, you know, I'm wondering at that time. I mean, you you heard about COINTELPRO, which was a counterintelligence program that was enacted up on the left or the movement in the '60s and '70s. Were you guys aware that those COINTELPRO style uh, spying tactics, disruption tactics, um, these tactics where these agents would come in from the FBI or other agencies to kind of infiltrate your organization and advocate you do dangerous things in order to get you busted. Were you, did you notice any of that activity? Well, did, I, did I, people know about that. I
3: certainly did. I was, I became, I was elected to be the head of SDS, the national secretary of SDS in 1968.
0: You mean you were a defense minister
3: before you got here? Well, I wasn't the defense minister. I was a secretary, <laughs> the secretary of defense, a sec- the national secretary. secretary. You know, okay. secretary. I took notes and things like that.
0: Well, could you br- briefly talk about SDS and how they started and how you got involved? If okay, you don't but, mind.
3: No, I don't mind at and all.
0: Then, and then segue into this FBI infiltration thing.
3: Okay. Um, I, uh, SDS really started in uh, in the uh, early '60s. I, I think it's maybe '63. Uh, a lot. Of, uh, these were young people, mainly uh, in the big campuses in the East and the Midwest, and uh, led by a guy named Tom Hayden, the late uh, great activist Tom Hayden, who uh, was the lead author of something called the Port Huron Statement, which laid out the basic idea of participatory democracy, meaning democracy doesn't just mean you go to the polls every four years and vote, but you have to actively... Uh, uh, work and struggle every day, protest, uh, organize for for d- democratic ideals, and uh, I and so SDS up until you know through '66, I would say '67 was a small group of uh, these in- intellectuals on the campus, academics, uh, but in '60 60, from '66 on up, because of the war, largely, and because of a uh, of uh, the civil rights movement, uh, there was a tremendous radicalization of young people, and uh, SDS uh, grew exponentially until we had a couple hundred thousand members across the country mm-hmm. on about 300 campuses. And when I ca- when I came to Chicago to be to to uh, be the, one of the leaders of SDS, uh, the organization was so big we had no idea who the members were. You know, you paid your five bucks and you got a membership card. I still have mine, by the way. And most didn't. And most didn't pay the five bucks, I assume. And uh, we raised money by, I would I would go around uh, speaking on campuses, pass the hat. Somebody would get, you know, they let you, people would let you crash on their couch or in the dorms or whatever, give you some weed or whatever. And then you'd move on to the next. That's how we fund lumpen Radio. I day. know. I yeah. know. That's why we feel so we at home. Say, yeah, <laughs> we've seen your business plan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. and uh, uh, but in terms of but in terms of Cointel Pro, uh, our organization was was infiltrated. Uh, we our offices were at sixteen oh eight West Madison Street here in Chicago. Uh, by the way, when when my wife and I moved here, in to to move into the national office uh we drove up we got off the expressway and and uh, came up madison street it was right after dr king was assassinated the whole west side was up in flames along with about 40 or 50 other cities across the country tanks were rolling up madison street and there was barbed wire out there and we used to sit up on the roof of the national office watching the watching the west side burning it was an incredible thing for a kid from you know a surfer boy from LA you know to come into this situation Uh, my wife was pregnant at the time and um, you know and we were living in the we were living in the heart of the west side Uh, uh, we went we went it was a tumultuous year and a lot of our friends were uh, jailed or killed Uh, as I said the Panther Black Panther Party office was right up the block on Madison Street one day there was a knock on the door of our offices and there was two uh, young African-American guys out, out front. We peeped through the little slot, you know, yeah, who is this, what do you want? One guy says, uh, I'm Fred Hampton. And the other guy says, and I'm Bobby Rush, Minister of Defense for the Black Panther Party. And, uh, and Fred was the chairman. He's a young guy, uh, just maybe 20 years old. And uh, we've we just opened our Panther office up the block, and we wonder if you guys got any spare office furniture or typewriters or stuff that we could borrow from you. And so we came in. That's when we first met I first met Fred. Uh, we became very close friends. Uh, uh, my first My firstborn uh, was named after him, Jennifer Hampton. Uh, uh, he was a, He was assassinated on in a cointel pro. Assault on the Black Panther Party's apartment. Uh, he and Mark Clark, uh, another Panther leader, uh, uh, f- Fred's wife was shot. She was pregnant with uh, Fred Jr. at the time. Uh, and of course, later, uh, you know, the the courts uh, ruled, in, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, that the that the police were guilty of this this assault, and uh, they they want a big uh, the families want a big suit. Anyway, I won't get into all that, but Cointel Pro to us meant uh, that there aside from infiltration and dirty tricks, trying to foment splits, uh, splits between husband and wives, uh, you know, spreading rumors about you know, who's sleeping with who and things like that, there was also assassination attempts. I mean, it was the real deal. And uh, if you went into the police station uh, in the precinct down on the west side, Above the, above the sergeant's desk, y- you saw like uh, 10 pictures up on the wall of, of Panther Party people, young lords, you know, uh, the Puerto Rican organization, SDS people, including my own picture. And underneath each picture was a, a figure like 2,000, 3,000. And that was the amount in the pool if any of us were, were shot, you see
1: i-94 spoke to ted geltner author of blood bone and marrow about the life of noted writer harry cruz the hard-drinking cruz endured a difficult childhood and in this segment geltner tells us how cruz almost died in a hog boil I 94 airs every Sunday at 10 a.m.
5: We have a special show today. We are going to be joined momentarily by Ted Geltner through The Miracle of the Internet. He is the author of two books one about Jim Murray, a sports writer who I'm personally quite fond of. I'm hoping Ted will spend a couple seconds to be able to talk with us about that. But today's show is on the late author, Harry Cruz. Uh, Harry Cruz was a uh, man who was somewhat pigeonholed as a southern novelist. I believe we're going to try to chew over that for a little bit. He wrote uh, The Knockout Artist as well as The uh, Naked in Garden Hills, which was his first breakout book. He also wrote screenplays, uh, some of which were produced, some of which were produced uncredited. But we want to kind of dive in, first of all, and introduce our first guest, Ted. Thank you for joining us on the show today.
6: Thanks guys, thanks for having me on Looking forward to talking about Harry this morning
5: We're going to play a real quick excerpt right now We've heard from the biographer of Harry Cruz But we haven't heard from Harry Cruz himself So we've got a little excerpt right now From a book called All We Need of Hell
1: Jert smiled fatly Anything to help you out, Duff? Duffy closed the door, turned and reached Between Jert's legs, closing his nail-breaking Hand around Jert's jewels He squeezed and pulled Jert hunkered into a quarter squat and color leached from his face His voice when it came was a gasping whisper You gosh down crazy mother But he stood utterly still because at his slightest movement Duffy brought more pressure to bear on his testicles You even look like you're going to touch me, said Duffy And I'm going to rip him off, understand? Yes, oh, oh yes Come with me, said Duffy He led Jert around the desk. Jert followed, stepping gingerly on tiptoe. Duffy took him around three times before he stopped. "'You do that very well,' Duffy said. "'Try to get control of yourself,' whispered Jert, beginning to slobber just a bit. "'Get control? Hell, I've got control, wouldn't you say, Jert?' Enough pressure now to squeeze the juice out of a lemon. "'Wouldn't you?' Jert danced a little jig. "'Oh my god, yes, you are in control. All the way!' "'Okay. In that case, big fella, just step up here on this chair.' Duffy lifted and Jert followed as if by magic. When he was standing on the chair, Duffy said, "'Now step over to the desk.' Jert stepped and stood looking down at Duffy's hand where it held him fast between the legs. "'For God's sake!' whispered Jert. "'For God's sake!' "'Now,' said Duffy with some satisfaction, "'what I want you to do is crow like a rooster.' "'Crow like a rooster?' crow like a rooster cock-a-doodle-doo said Jert I said crow Duffy hissed squeezing Jert's jewels together like two walnuts he meant to crack against each other oh cried Jert going up on his tiptoes then he threw back his head and crowed for all he was worth cock-a-doodle-doo better once more cock-a-doodle-doo Duffy watched the door again he said Jerk crowed again, and Duffy turned him loose and stepped back from the desk as the secretary burst into the office, her mouth stretched thin, her eyes wide with fright. Jerk stood on the desk, half-hunkered now, his pale face gone slate gray.
2: And that was a reading from All We Need of Hell. And one of the things that you know we don't hear, we hear about Cruz's violence and uh and goth, you know, southern gothic tradition, but you know, he's really funny and a lot of his books have a and I think you have to have a certain sense of humor to appreciate it. But before we get into all we need to hell Ted, I wanted to ask you about I in the biography and I never knew this. I believe when Harry was 5 years old, they were um you can tell me exactly what they were doing, but his friends, they were spinning each other around and he ended up getting thrown into a giant vat of boiling water. Um, I had never known that, and his, apparently his skin fell off, and he, it took him years to heal. Um, can you ex- describe that scenario? I know it's something to do with hogs. Um, I can't remember the exact, but I, 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 could you tell us a little bit about that? Because that, the imagery of that just like blew my mind.
6: Yes, that that's another you know story from from the life of Harry Cruz. That's really you know formative because he had you know the, the the worst things in his life would happen to him, you know, before he was six years old. They're all in this the childhood where he wrote this the, his his memoir. But that is, uh, you know, it was kind of a celebration that they would have when they would skin the hogs in Bacon County. And I think a lot of the different families would get together and, and you know, they would go through this, this ritual process where they're skinning the the hogs and then they would, you know, have a feast. And so all the families there and all the children are around and uh to skin a hog and you know i learned a lot of this you know kind of depression era farming information from having to do this research you need you know they would be in 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 giant vats where uh, of of water that's just to the level of boiling but but not quite boiling so as hot as you can possibly get it and if you put a hog in there um then the skin you know, uh, once, you know, you kill the hog, you put it in there. And then once you take it out, the skin peels right off really easily. So all the, you know, Harry's like five, six years old at the time and all the children are playing this game called pop the whip where they're all, you know, eight or 10 kids are all, you know, kind of holding hands in a line. And the first one, Uh, you know, kind of goes in in an S shape and starts, you know, going a little bit faster. And and so the back of the line, you know, the is getting kind of pulled around more and more until you try to pop the guy, the last guy off. So that's what they were playing. Harry gets popped off right into the vat where there's a hog in there. And, you know, Harry falls in there, Uh, you know, so everyone, men, women, children, everyone thought he was dead. You know, that he, that this, you know, you can't survive this. The hogs don't, don't come out of there alive. Uh, He gets pulled out and he, you know, he wrote about this afterwards. He said, you know, I, I knew that I was dead. I could tell I was dead because I could see it in the faces of everybody around me, you know? uh, And so he, like you said, you know, his skin fell off and, and, you know, this, these were poor depression chaircroppers they didn't know how to take care of them or what to do they wrapped him in a sheet and they drove him you know in an old car to the nearest town which was you know a, a long way away and um but he you know, obviously he survived it um but it, uh it was you know a long time i think he i think he had to you know there was they had to put him in like a contraption that they built with you know sheets on the side and and uh, he spent a long time recovering from that and that was uh immediately after he had he had had polio and and had uh the same sort of thing where he was you know spent a long time recovering with, with you know no care no real medical care at all and and people would and during both these circumstances people would come around you know from neighboring uh areas to to look at him you know and, and that's where i yeah you know you, you you see the development of of his uh his view of himself as kind of a freak or an outsider you know that, that you know i'm i'm uh so uh, disabled from these things that people want to come and gawk at me, you know, and and so throughout his whole life, kind of he retained that, that, you know, view of himself. So yeah, that's, that's that's an important story in the life of Harry Cruz.
1: Arts program, Bad at Sports spoke to Raven Munsell and Jess Melmud about The Trunk Show, a rotating semi-mobile exhibit of curated bumper stickers made by local artists at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m.
7: As I said before, this is Brian Andrews. I'm joined by Ryan Peter Miller and our special guest, Jesse Malmed, who you may be hearing a little bit more from in future episodes. Uh, and today we are joined by Raven Munchell. Monsell, ah, sorry. Know, she we even told us we just <laughs> We got all distracted by all this. Done it all twice. the shells that are here. All the shells here. Yeah. Uh So Raven, you're a local curator uh, here in Chicago, I know. Um, and you've got a couple shows up, uh, two actually concurrently oh. this summer. Can you talk a little bit about the project Trunk Space? Trunk show. Trunk show. I'm so sorry. Mm, that's trunk fine. show. Yeah, we we're that's terrible. We get our name show. wrong. We yeah. get our, yeah. her, her yeah. projects wrong. I'm going to chalk it up to being <laughs> sick. I'm just gonna chalk it up. I guess I'm just a fool. You're disgusting, <laughs> yeah, and I'm fair right. I'm sorry. It's
8: a more long-term sickness. Yeah. <laughs> so,
9: Trunk Show is a project that Jesse and I started um, over three years ago. Um, it's a it's a mobile exhibition space and space for the exhibition of artist-made bumper stickers. Um, so, we I don't know. I, I think I want you to describe it.
8: Uh, so every month for three years, another artist was commissioned to design and produce a bumper sticker, and um, they would then be exhibited on the car—a solo exhibition. So every every month, the car would be completely cleaned, or at least the outside, the not the inside. The bumper, usually, right. uh, the car itself is uh, a now ninety nine point seven percent dead car, a uh, forest green nineteen ninety nine. Forest green. I'm was. guessing it's a Subaru. Ooh no! Oh. It was it was a Taurus. Okay. It was kind of like, like like one of those like nice sort of like bubbly uh, okay. late '90s ones. So not the more, kind of Morris felt two thousand right. one you might be thinking of. Um, yes, yeah, so sort of like, like a beat up car. The only thing that Raven and I really own together of any value, and even that is sort of well, according to the insurance company, was three hundred dollars. Um,
9: yeah, two hundred ninety-seven. Two hundred ninety-seven.
8: Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I uh, I like to exaggerate. Uh, yeah, but so, so every month we would have an artist make a bumper sticker we we produce them in sort of like relatively limited amounts, 50 the first year 100 the second year, people could have them by subscription or purchase them a la carte and uh, what was really exciting for us about this project was it gave us the opportunity to work with really interesting artists but also in a sort of similar vein though maybe kind of with a little more levity than third object um, it was really about also thinking about all the different individual components of an exhibition and how those can kind of be exploded and take on different lives and so once the once the show itself or the work itself is sort of um, necessarily limited, you know, a three three inch by 10 inch bumper sticker, uh, then all these other things can take on different kind of creative forms so that we can have, um, like, like the press release became a sort of like a narrative space where it was almost like the, the Christmas letter home and each month there was a, a component of, um, it, it became kind of like a, a space for, for, for writing and for thinking about that voice in a different term that kind of exists outside of a lot of the, the typical art world writing. Um, and then also like where, where the bumper sticker would go on the car, where the car would be in the world, what the music would be at the, at the show, what the snacks would be. All these things became kind of spaces that were both taken very seriously as a thing that needed to be sort of like thought about critically and opened up, but also a very kind of goofy space.
7: So where would the show be? Wherever the car was like on the, on the street
9: or, or whatever made sense for, um, for the exhibition or for right. the sticker. So it was often up to the artists um, if they had some idea of where, where they wanted to do it. So, uh, like, for Alex Chitty's uh, sticker release, she wanted to do it on top on the um, parking lot, out the Home Depot parking lot on Roosevelt and Canal or whatever that is, it ha- because it has a great view of the city. And so we just... You know, essentially had a tailgate party (laughs) on top of the Home Depot parking lot. And there
8: was like for Deborah Stratman's, which said, "Honk if you love sinkholes." We sort of like left the space open with the feeling that there might be a sinkhole that would open. And when one didn't, we went to uh, the Whole Foods parking lot in uh, whatever in Lincoln Park. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, so sometimes they're also like they were, they were. I mean, there's a lot of jokes in here. Maybe I didn't mention that it's very funny. Well, I mean, that's I mean
7: that's sort of the the medium of a bumper sticker, right? You got politics, you got humor. Not not really a lot of like you know fine intricate
8: detailed you though know, we had a few work, things that were right, sort of yeah. like that which was which was nice but those also you have to get kind of a lot a lot closer to I, I
7: imagine puns nuances so puns. challenging
8: on that amount of space as well you're saying yeah. would you say three inches by three by ten okay there's one that was three by eleven which was Ollie Watts which was this amazing nice. um, dog sin that you cut in half and then put on the opposite sides of the bumper so it looks like this dog is stretching all the way around a car. And so that one, as sort of a joke to ourselves, and to have to buy envelopes and make everything difficult, was just like a little bit longer than mm-hmm. all the others. So people have the full collection. That one extends a little bit. Um, and so, so that one—that's actually kind of a good example because that was one that was uh, we released at the uh, at the closing of his show at the Hyde Park Art Center. And so, oftentimes it was also in partnership with um, with some other you know like a gallery or, or a something that the or artist was type. already engaging with yeah right. and that was also part of our thinking was that this could function like a bumper sticker can function both as an autonomous work but also it could be instrumentalized by these artists if they had if they wanted it to function sort of as merch um, so like Jody Mack uh, hers was the um, can you say urinating on the air yeah, <laughs> we just did. I'm just yeah. kidding. Uh, the, the, the urinating Calvin uh, on a on the Pink Floyd uh, "Dark Side of the Moon" thing, right. which we get, get, to the get, get total
7: total bumper sticker. You know, totally thinking right. about those tropes. Fodder, absolutely. Yeah,
8: and so part of the thing we were also thinking about is that you know those there's these kind of like common tropes that exist in bumper stickers, and actually both the two. I mean, Deborah's also sort of makes use of the history of bumper stickers, um, but also thinking about the bumper sticker as this sort of like really kind of, like, funny, elemental way of projecting one's identity out into the world. And in particular in places where there is kind of more of a car culture, that's sort of a way that people, you can you can sort of tell from the constellation of their, like, seven things. Be like, oh, okay, this is, like, a punk who is, you know, has these very po- political leanings and seems to have spent time in Idaho. Interesting, right. like, you know. Um, and so it's, so the way that that can also do something like that. And then so what, what does that mean when it's something that is kind of, like, more constructed as... As something in the way that we think about art um which is definitely related to sort of like identity projection um but that using somebody else's sort of like finely honed uh ideas as part of the way that the person is is saying who they are to the world
7: yeah certainly i mean you, you'd expect certain different things on a volvo and, and then you would on a truck right and you know you're getting you're certainly already sort of stereotyping people by car purchase and, and other elements has there ever been a group show? Are you going to you know cover the two hundred and ninety seven dollar vehicle with all of the bumper stickers at the end of end of the project or, or the end of the vehicle's life, perhaps?
9: Well, so we already had we had our last show um, last October with every house has a door and the sticker says exhaust the possible. Um, so that is the only sticker that's on the car right now, um, but. I, I don't know. We, have, we haven't really thought about what happens to it as an exhibition space once it's towed away. Um,
7: you need to have like one last party at the at the impound lot. Yeah, I was I was envisioning
9: yeah. that this morning. Actually, there's this great scrapper place kind of past Pulaski on, I don't know, somewhere, um, and it has these three cars on these gigantic posts in front of the in front of the junkyard, and it's really this kind of beautiful image. Uh, that might be a good spot to have the car towed to and then have a little last hurrah.
5: Trump Diaries. This week, Julius Caesar rankles. Trump acts out a scene from King Lear. Sessions clams up. Man, Britain gets a shock. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 140, June 8th. Former FBI Director James Comey dealt a major blow to the Trump presidency, setting out in detail the case that Trump had tried to obstruct justice. He accused Trump and his top aides of lying, suggesting that the president wanted special treatment in exchange for loyalty, and Comey added that he thinks he lost his job because of how he handled the Russian investigation. Comey believes that Trump clearly tried to derail the FBI investigation into Michael Flynn. Said Comey, quote, the administration is working to defame me and the FBI and telling lies to the American people. Comey also admitted that he had leaked information through an intermediary to the New York Times in the hopes of triggering a special prosecutor. That prosecutor, Robert Mueller, received memos from Comey. Comey also rebutted Trump's famous tweet, saying bluntly, quote, Lordy, I hope there are tapes. Comey added Trump's actions were now in the scope of the FBI investigation. Republicans scrambled to try to give Trump cover. Paul Ryan defended his attempt to influence Comey, saying, quote, he's new at this. Trump is new to government, and so he probably wasn't steeped in the long-running protocols that established the relationships between the DOJ, FBI, and White House. Ryan added that Trump asking for Comey's loyalty was obviously inappropriate, and that it's also clear Russia meddled in the U.S. election. And the House passed a bill that would gut major elements of Dodd-Frank, the regulatory legislation drafted in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. The Financial Choice Act exempts financial institutions deemed too big to fail from restrictions that limit risk-taking. Republicans say Dodd-Frank regulations are the reason for anemic economic growth in the U.S. While the bill passed the House, it faces long odds of becoming law as it would require the support of Democrats in the Senate. Day 141, June 9th. Trump accused Comey of lying and said he's, quote, 100% willing to testify about his conversations with the former FBI director, saying Comey's remarks just weren't true. Trump denied the assertion. He asked Comey to end the FBI's investigation into Michael Flynn and asked Comey for a loyalty pledge. Trump also declined to confirm the existence of White House recordings of his conversations with Comey. He added, however, that Comey, quote, confirmed a lot of what I said before capping off his press conference with no collusion, no obstruction, he's a leaker. And there was a shock result in Britain's election with the Tories losing their outright majority, causing a hung parliament. Labour picked up 31 seats in that election, significantly weakening Prime Minister Theresa May and giving leftist Jeremy Corbyn a major win. May, who has been asked to resign, is to stay on. The election also gravely complicates Brexit. The pound fell on those election results. And a White House employee has been found in violation of a federal law prohibiting political activity by federal employees. Dan Scavino Jr., the White House Director of Social Media, sent a tweet in April calling for the defeat of a Republican member of Congress who has been critical of President Trump. The United States Office of Special Counsel took no official action but did issue a warning against further violations of the Hatch Act. And Trump accused Qatar of being, quote, a funder of terror at a very high level and demanded that it cut off that money flow. Trump's comments undercut his Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, who has thrown himself into an effort to mediate a growing dispute between Qatar and several of its neighbors. Tillerson called for calm and thoughtful dialogue to resolve the crisis, which Trump's tweet clearly was not. Qatar is also arguably the USA's most important military outpost in the Middle East. Day 142, June 10th. Trump's lawyer plans to file a complaint against Comey for leaking his memos. Mark Kasowitz will file complaints with the Justice Department Inspector General and the Senate Judiciary Committee accusing Comey of violating executive privilege, which was called, quote, frivolous grandstanding by an expert in whistleblower protection. And Mitch McConnell took a procedural step to fast track efforts to repeal Obamacare, which sidesteps typical committee processes. By invoking Rule 14, McConnell can now put the bill on the Senate calendar so that a vote can be held as soon as the bill is ready. The move means the Senate GOP can bypass committee hearings and debates of the Republican health care bill in an effort to get a vote in by July 4th. Said one Republican aide about why the bill was being conducted in such secrecy, we're not stupid. And two major sponsors pulled out of a public theater production of Julius Caesar. Bank of America and Delta withdrew after right-wing pressure. The staging of the play depicts a yellow-wig Caesar who is killed in bloody fashion in the third act. Previous stagings of the play have included an Obama-like figure and right-wingers may not be familiar with the Shakespearean masterpiece. Julius Caesar's moral is that the assassination of the leader leads to chaos and destruction. Day 143, June 11th. Trump is considering scrapping a planned visit to Britain later this year. Reports in Britain say he told a stunned Prime Minister Theresa May he did not want to endure protests during his visit. Trump's comments after a recent terrorist attack in London brought widespread condemnation. And Preet Bharara, the former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York who was ousted by Trump, said Sunday he beat become increasingly uncomfortable with Trump's efforts to cultivate some kind of relationship with him. And that his firing came 22 hours after finally refusing to take a call from the president. Bahara was initially was to have been retained by Trump, was one of 93 attorneys fired, none of whom have been replaced. Trump's personal lawyer told colleagues he got Bharara fired. Day 144, June 12th. In a scene right out of King Lear, Trump held a surreal open cabinet meeting on Monday in which he falsely claimed he had led a record-setting pace of activity and had been one of the most productive presidents in American history. His cabinet members then took turns praising him in what was seen as part of an intense effort by the White House to bolster Trump's mood. Trump apparently is enraged by Comey's blistering testimony to Congress last week and the appointment of Robert Mueller as a special prosecutor. And a second federal appeals court has ruled against Trump's Muslim ban. The decision was only the latest in a string of rejections for Trump. This one came on procedural grounds, with the court ruling Trump had overstepped his constitutional authority. And Jeff Sessions told Congress he will testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee on Tuesday in open session. Sessions had been scheduled to testify before other committees about the Justice Department's budget. And D.C. and Maryland sued Trump today, alleging he has violated anti-corruption clauses in the Constitution by accepting millions of dollars in payments and benefits from foreign governments since moving to the White House. The lawsuit centers in the fact that Trump chose to retain ownership of his company when he became president and a huge wave of anti-government demonstrations rolled across Russia as thousands of people gathered in over 100 cities to protest corruption. Authorities arrested Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny and hundreds of others, but the rallies, the biggest in years, continued unabated. The rallies are a new sign of resistance to the Kremlin's ossified oligarchy and sagging economy. And late in the day, Trump's attorney said they will not rule out firing Robert Mueller, that special counsel appointed to look into Trump's campaign ties to Russia. Trump attorney Jay Sekulow said, quote, I'm not going to speculate on what he will or will not do. That, again, is an issue that the president with his advisors would discuss if there was a basis. Day 145, June 13th. In a story that roiled Washington ahead of Jeff Sessions' testimony, the chief of Newsmax Media, who is a close friend of Trump, asserted on PBS that Trump was considering firing Robert Mueller III. He is the special counselor investigating possible ties between the campaign and Russian officials. Such a move would be politically explosive and would recall the Saturday Night Massacre of the Nixon era. Sean Spicer did not deny the report, but said that no decision had been made and that the Newsmax executive had not personally spoken to Donald Trump about that issue. And Jeff Sessions testified and began with an emotional appeal, calling any suggestion that he colluded with the Russians during the election a detestable lie. Please colleagues, hear me on this, he added. Sessions acknowledged he met twice with a Russian, uh, Sergei Kizlak but suggested he could not remember whether he met Kizlak a third time. Sessions added that he did not have any private meetings nor recall any conversations with any Russian officials at the Mayflower Hotel. Senator Kamala Harris was cut off by Republican senators for the second time in a week as she grilled Sessions. Harris, a former prosecutor, was making Sessions squirm with questions about DOJ policy and whether or not he had read relevant statutes. Sessions' testimony was greeted with groans. He was accused of stonewalling the committee and trying to invoke executive privilege. Only Trump can enact executive privilege. And Rod Rosenstein in a separate session said that if Trump demanded he fire special counsel Robert Mueller, he would refuse unless there was just cause. Rosenstein said, quote, I'm not gonna follow any orders unless I believe these are lawful and appropriate orders. If there were good cause, I would consider. And Senate leaders agreed on bipartisan sanctions to punish Russia for election meddling, placing the White House in an uncomfortable position. The agreement would impose sanctions on corrupt Russian actors, malicious cyber activity, and provide for a mandated congressional review if the White House sought to waive or ease existing sanctions unilaterally. Day 146, June 14th. Russian hackers hit election systems in 39 states accessing software designed to be used by poll workers on election day. The scope and sophistication was so concerning the Obama administration complained directly to Moscow and warned the attacks risk setting off a broader conflict and Steve Scalise, the majority whip of the House of Representatives, was shot at a baseball field in Alexandria, Virginia this morning. That site includes both a YMCA and a park with baseball fields where members of the Congressional baseball team regularly practice. Scalise was apparently shot in the hip. The gunman is in custody. 50 shots apparently were fired. And Senate Republicans are worried they'll blow their July 4th deadline or fall short of 50 votes on Obamacare repeal. Senators continue to raise doubts about coming to an agreement, even though Mitch McConnell has said that failure is not an option. Adding to the chaos, Trump called the House health care bill mean this morning and that the Senate version should be more generous. Congressmen, however, are increasingly unconcerned with Trump's policy whims. And Trump's approval ratings have fallen again, this time to 36%. More people trust Comey's testimony in front of Congress as well. These are the Trump Diaries.
1: Stephanie Manriquez spoke to Brandon Markle Holmes, a local multimedia artist from Austin who recently supplied guest vocals on Gorilla's latest album. Holmes spoke about school plays, his dreams for the future, and how he ended up with the well-known animated music group. And you're listening
10: to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. My name is Stephanie Manriquez, and today we're interrupting... Uh, our regular programming because we are having a special interview with Brandon Markle Holmes that is joining us here in the studio and he's going to talk about his uh, career. He's a true Chicagoan uh, an artist and multimedia artist, performer and a singer. So we welcome Brandon. Hi, how are you?
11: I'm doing well. How about you?
10: I'm doing fantastic. I'm really excited that you are joining us today here in Lampen Radio. And visiting us from Logan Square.
11: Yeah, I'm so, man, I'm so happy to be here. I'm, like, so jealous you guys got all this magic here in uh, Bridgeport. I mean, Chicago is magical altogether, but you guys have all of, like, the really, like, underground galleries and, like, all the colors. And I'm just, like, want to reconsider moving. (laughs) You should.
10: You should. And I love that you're talking about the colors because uh, you are... um, for the people who are listening, he's wearing these colorful pink pastel colors with flowers and tropical uh, themes. So tell us, why do you love Chicago so much?
11: Man, why do I love Chicago? I mean, I was born and raised here. Uh, my family's from here, and my father and my mother. My grandmother actually like migrated here from Mississippi Um, and she, like, bought a big house on the west side of Chicago, and that's where most of my family was raised. Um, And just, like, throughout the years, you know, Chicago has been many different things to me. Uh, growing, Growing up on the west side, it was, like, where I was born, but then I went to, like, high school on the west side, and then I went to college in the West Loop at UIC, And before I went to college, I was a part of the Gallery 37 uh, Advanced Arts Education Program, founded by Maggie Daly. And then also the theater scene here, and then now the music scene, and kind of like the free artist movement. Um, The reason why I love Chicago is that you can just have a voice, and you can create a movement wherever you are. You're not necessarily uh, marginalized by like financial barriers um, that say like you need this much money to be successful. When you look at other places on the coast, it just takes so much energy to just do anything. It's like extremely difficult. And I talk to a lot of my friends who are on the East and the West Coast who are the same age as me and they're doing the same type of work. And I just hear how difficult it is for them to just like get by. And they are very brilliant. They're extremely talented, and I think Chicago just has a great space of incubation for creative minds and creative people. And I think the the United States, like the the nation, is figuring that out slowly, and everybody's kind of like – moving here. There's like an influx of people coming here. I know in the media, people talk about all the time, like how many people are leaving Chicago, but no one talks about how many people are actually coming here from New York and LA and Portland and all these different places around the United States. So,
10: And um, you touch a lot of things that we're going to start um, detailing little by little. So you were part of these after-school programmings from Gallery 37, which is beautiful. So you're a child of this, uh, this kind of project, and that's beautiful. So tell us a little bit about your artistic background. Um, how do you mix it? Because you are a multimedia artist, and I know eh, even right now that in your music, you also you always um, interact with these um, um, with. With this, with these techniques, with... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. uh-huh. a
11: lot of nuance and like theatrics. Um, my background with the arts is uh, kind of, I mean, it started at my church, uh, Pine Avenue Presbyterian Church uh, on the west side of Chicago, and then slowly it evolved um, to kind of like me kind of getting to theater. So I would go to the Saturday afternoon program like every weekend and I would learn like dance and then I would learn like music and then we would like stretch, you know, I do all this stuff. And I was very fortunate because I had a lot of really great, awesome professional people uh, around me. And also through my church, I was a part of a program called Cluster Tutoring Program, which was a not profit program that was based like both on the West side and the Austin community, but also in Oak Park. And I had the privilege of being like tutored by like really great professionals who wanted to come to the West side every Tuesday night for about three hours to tutor these kids on like any given subject. Um, I had tutors who were freaking like engineers for the water department. And the last tutor I had was this lovely lady by the name of Aixa Alfonso. She's a PhD professor of biology at uh, the University of Chicago. No, University of Illinois Chicago. And she freaking like taught me math and science like from grades like 8th to like maybe 7th grade all the way till I graduated high school. So,
10: yes, it's very curious that you're talking about science because I guess your career was based or debated between you want to be a doctor into science and then you became uh, an artist. You, you know, you led towards that. How did you
11: choose your path? Man, um, you know, I think a lot of times we 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 want to do what we think we should do. And so when I was about 4 years old I told my grandmother I she's like what do you want to be when you grow up I said a doctor. And and that was something that I felt like that was programmed for me to say. And like since then like my family kept like reminding me like you want to be the doctor you want to be this doctor and so I kept like pushing myself to like try to be this doctor, right? And I was doing everything that I needed to become a doctor, like taking all these AP chemistry, bio classes, all of that. But I didn't love it. I absolutely didn't love it. It wasn't fun. I didn't like it. And I struggled really hard to actually do well in those classes. I did okay. But it was it was a, a huge challenge. But the thing that kept repeating itself was, like, the stage, like, singing, you know, music, being in drama club. And that's what everyone in high school and middle school knew me for was the kid who performed all the time. And then it was it was, like, one of my good friends from high school who was, like, His name is Kenny, Kenneth Anthony. He now lives in Washington, D.C., and he's, like, a genius. But he was like, Brandon, if I had a voice like that, I would just, like, be an artist. I'll be a singer. Like, why are you wasting your time struggling trying to (laughs) understand all this hard stuff? He's like, you know how many people in the world wish they could sing, and you're sitting here talking about you want to be a freaking surgeon? And I was like, I just want the money. Like, I just want to have a good life, blah, blah, blah. And uh, long story short, one thing led to another. Uh, my British literature teacher, junior year in high school, um, Mr. Turner, we were like learning Beowulf at the time, and he, he made us write poetry or whatever. And I wrote like this poem, and then I like sang something. And it was the last day of, um, it was the last day for registration for Gallery 37. And he was like, all right, Brandon, he pulled me to the side. He's like, I do not want to see you in these hallways next year. He's like, you need to be in an advanced arts program. He said, like, you have a gift. And he said, you know, you've been in choir, you've been doing all these things. And he's like, I feel like your gift needs more um, development and needs to be poured into more. And you need better opportunity to, to take it to the next level. And if it wasn't for him saying, like, dude, you need to like go audition for this, this is the last day I'll sign all of the waivers and everything that you need like I wouldn't have probably went into theater I probably would have went into probably went into med school and like failed out or something <laughs> or like if I got into med school you know um but it was those people around me who were saying Follow your your passion. Follow your passion because all along my passion was music and art, but I felt like I, I felt like there wasn't valuable. I didn't feel like it was special, you know. And I'm just thankful that those people really pushed me and were like, "Dude, like just do what you love to do every day."
10: What was the song? The part of the a play when you realize this is the moment?
11: Um, it would have to be when I did the whiz in eighth grade. Uh, I played the scarecrow and I just remember um, being on stage and just like this like feeling coming over me and me becoming, like coming alive but also like looking around the stage, seeing all these lights and seeing like how beautiful everything was and how the audience was reacting to everything. I like I think I like forgot my lines and I was like improving and then everybody was just busting out laughing. I was like, I'm not like I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm like forgetting the script right now. Um But it was a it was a really a magical moment because it was the first time where I felt like I could truly just like be free and, like, create any character from my imagination or discover new things about myself. Like, there was literally no wrong answers. And when you're thinking about, like, math and science, like, everything is extremely, like, it's kind of black and white because it has to be, you know? And what I realized was, like, you know, I, my gift may not be, like, being a surgeon or whatever, but I still can play a part And the human condition, and like, you know, shedding light on certain issues, uh, helping with the healing process in our communities and the struggle that we have. And I think a lot of times, like, doctors do the same thing. And I think as artists, we have a responsibility in our communities as well. And it's to be, like, kind of cultural healers and innovators and pioneers. And, you know, we can use our work to you know, diagnose and. (laughs) And heal. (laughs) Yeah, heal things. Yes. And that's one thing that I've been uh, extremely focused on in my work is, it's like, like, exposing things, the breakdown and the discrepancies and the disruptions that happen, but also, Mm -hmm. like, exploring the conversations that could happen. And I'm still, like, refining that vocabulary. So, I'm like, Right now, I'm just still figuring out how to tell these stories, but it's a beautiful thing to be given a platform, I guess, to tell those stories in front of people.
1: The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com.